Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, True Wisdom. Amen. Well, when Paul wrote the letter that you have opened now on your laps to the church of Corinth around AD 55, if you're brand, brand new to the Bible, you need to know that the Roman Empire at that time was ruling over the civilized world. But even though Rome was the great power of the day, it was Greek culture and thought that ruled over the minds of the day. It was people, Greek philosophers, men like Aristotle and Plato, and Socrates and others that continued to impact man's thinking well after Rome defeated Greek in the Battle of Corinth in 146 BC. And so even though the Roman army, the Roman military prevailed over the Greeks in history, it was Greek poetry and art and philosophy and science that continued to be entrenched in civilized society for, for, for hundreds of years. And so the ancient Greeks put a high value on wisdom. They exalted man's intellect. They really believed that true wisdom could be obtained through human reason and, and philosophical debate. And so philosophy, born in Greece, philosophy meaning the love of wisdom, philosophy is what dominated Greek thinking when Paul wrote this letter, again, that you have opened on your laps. How many of you guys remember taking philosophy in college? You remember that course? I hated that course. It's just, it was hard for me. And I, I appreciate some philosophy, but here's, here's what you need to know. Much of philosophy has to do with man's ideas concerning truth and the meaning of life. Much of philosophy has to do with fallen man's ideas about truth and the meaning of life. Well, guess what? We don't need man's fallen ideas to tell us how to figure out truth and the meaning of life because God's already revealed that in his word. We don't need man's ideas, we have God's word. So philosophy is not God's revelation. It is man's musings about knowledge and reality and existence. And the Greeks of Paul's day spent countless hours debating philosophical ideas. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 21, it says, the citizens of Athens spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And so that's what they always did. And they did it in the marketplace. They did it up on Mars Hill. And so what they did is they were constantly sharing their philosophical ideas about knowledge, reality, existence, truth, the meaning of life, the meaning of the universe. Now, Paul was invited when he went to Athens to Mars Hill. If you've ever been to Athens, then you know Mars Hill uh, still exists, and there it is. Um, there, and if you stand on Mars Hill, and this is on my bucket list, I haven't been there yet, uh, but if you stand on Mars Hill and you look across Athens, you'll see the Acropolis, and you'll see, of course, the Parthenon on the Acropolis. It's all still there. And by the way, the Bible is the only holy book in the world that has archaeological evidence, thousands and thousands of archaeological evidence to back up what it says in this book. 
Book of Mormon doesn't exist. Quran doesn't exist. The word of God authenticated by archeology. span And so when Paul was there on Mars Hill, he stood before the Areopagus court. The Areopagus court was a council of judges in that day. And those judges would rule on civil matters and criminal matters and religious matters. The, the, the guys in the Areopagus court were the intellectual elites of the day, exalting their intellect. And yet, when the apostle Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, when he preached the message of Christ crucified, died, and risen again, a lot of those intellectual elites began to mock Paul. By the way, nothing's changed today. You go to our universities across the United States of America, and what do the intellectual elites do? They mock Christianity, they mock the gospel. Same thing 2,000 years ago on Mars Hill. The Greeks thought that the message of the cross was foolishness. They would say to Paul, Paul, wait a minute, you're trying to tell me that, that God became man, and, and his name was Jesus, and he came from where? Galilee? Where's that? And then he went to a cross, a Roman cross, and he died, and then he rose again. What have you been smoking, Paul? And they all began to mock him. By the way, Paul did not plant a church in Athens. They were too smart in their own minds for that. They mocked, they ridiculed the message of the cross. And that's why it says now in verse 18 of chapter 1, for the message of the cross is, what's the word? Foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God. For it is written, and he quotes now from Isaiah 29, 14, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So your first point today, if you're taking notes, is that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. If the cross this morning means nothing to you, I know something about you. You are perishing. But if the cross this morning is the power of God, I know something about you. You are being saved. Now, the Greeks considered the whole idea of a crucified king ludicrous, foolishness. The whole idea of a crucified king, quite frankly, it was offensive to the Greeks. The Roman Empire had been executing criminals by crucifixion for a long time, and it offended the sophisticated people of that day. In fact, the Roman philosopher Cicero said this. He said, the cross... It speaks of that which is so shameful, so horrible, that it should never be mentioned in polite society. Because they knew, they lived under the iron fist of Rome. They saw sometimes their streets lined with hundreds of people crucified so that Rome could intimidate those they ruled over. Don't defy the government. And yet today, we've lost all the meaning of the cross. You know, we have a little jewelry about the cross, and I wear this cross as a gift from my wife because it reminds me of the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made. That's what my cross reminds me of, but in society, you know, this doesn't really offend anybody, unless you live in the Middle East and ISIS is coming after you. 
But in America, this doesn't offend anybody. And so we're, we don't have any problem talking about the cross in polite society. But back then, they didn't even mention it because it was so horrific. A, a modern day um, counterpart of the cross today would be the electric chair. Can you imagine talking about the, how someone is executed by electrocution in polite society? Can you imagine talking about the subject, about how somebody is executed by electrocution over dinner? Can you imagine if somebody at the dinner table pipes up and says, well, you know, first what, what they do is they shave the criminal's head, and then after that, they strap him to a chair. They strap his arms, his legs, his groin, and his chest to a chair with belts. And, and then what they do is they put a sponge on top of his bald head, slightly moistened with saline. Then they put a skull cap electrode over the guy's head. And then they shave part of his leg. They put another electrode on his leg. And then when they pull down that lever, 500 to 2,000 volts of electricity flow through that guy for about 30 seconds. Then they check his heartbeat. And if he's still alive, they zap him again. Can you imagine talking about that over dinner? You know, and, and through the whole process, you know, sometimes, often, the eyes will pop out. The guy will defecate all over himself. Oh, can you pass the potatoes? You say, Pastor Mike, that's offensive. Exactly. And now you know how the Greeks felt when the Christians talked about Christ being crucified. Because crucifixion was more gruesome than being killed in the electric chair. And so, man, we, we got to go back to the idea of what Jesus actually went through. But the Greeks, a crucified king, that's foolishness. But look again at verse 18. To those, I'm sorry, to us who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. So that leads you to your next point, simply what the scripture says, and that is that the message of the cross is powerful to those who are being saved. I wonder if it's powerful in your life. The message of the cross, the message that the eternal, uncreated, holy God came to this earth entered time and space through a virgin's womb and became a man. And then later on, he went up to Jerusalem. He was rejected by the authorities of the day. Then he was blindfolded. He was beaten, spit upon. After that, he was, he was beaten by, with a flagellum until he was a bloody mess. Then they nailed God to the cross and he hung between heaven and earth, bleeding out. That's the message of the cross. And people who are being saved, they say that's powerful. That's the power of God. Why do, we, why do we think that? Because we know it was his relentless love that drove Jesus Christ to the cross. His relentless love for us. People do not understand why Jesus had to be crucified. Here's the simple reason why. Because God is a righteous God. And God says this, that anybody, anywhere on the planet that I created commits any type of sin, then the wages of sin is what, church family? Death. That's God's eternal decree. You cannot be saved until you're convicted and you realize you're lost. 
You cannot be saved until you get over yourself, stop trying to earn your way to heaven, realize that you are a member of the assembly of the pathetic, like, like, like I am also. You, there's no hope of heaven at all for you, and that if you've sinned, you deserve to die. How many sinners are in the house today? Can I see your hands? I want to raise two hands, okay? All right, so all of us deserve to die. We deserve to die physically. We deserve to die spiritually unless somebody died for us. And that's why we so love John 3, 16. <laughs> for God so what? The world. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, will not perish. People are perishing every single day. But those who trust in Jesus will not perish, but have what, church family? Everlasting life. And so how many of you guys are glad that God is not just a righteous God, he's a loving God, right? We're very happy about that. So happy about that. And so what did this loving God do? Well, he has two natures, righteous nature, nature of love. Those two natures kissed at the cross so that you and I could be saved. We say, thank you, Lord. The message of the cross, it's the power of God. Why? Because we realize that we're the ones that should have been executed but Jesus was executed in our place. And when we think through what he went through for us, we think, man, if he's willing to go to that extent, he must really love me. And he really does. He really, truly loves you. But you know, the Greeks, the intellectual elites of the day, they're too smart for this message. Look at verse 20. Paul says, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? In other words, you know, all the, the wisdom of man from Adam all the way to the last person before Christ comes again, you take all that wisdom and God has more wisdom in his little pinky fingernail than all the human beings who ever lived. Has God, in verse 20, not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. I want you to really look at that. The world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Your next point, man's intellect cannot bring him any closer to God. Man's intellect cannot bring him any closer to God. Now, when Paul said there in verse 21 that the world through wisdom did not know God, you got to understand he was not condemning education. Nothing in the Bible says don't educate your kids. Education is great. What Paul is saying is that all the education in the world cannot bring somebody one iota closer to God. Now, Paul found this out, again, when he went to Athens. It says there, I believe it's in Acts 17, that when, when Paul entered Athens, right, the, 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 the capital of the world in that day of the intellectual elites, when he was walking down the streets, you guys remember what he saw lining the streets? False gods. 
images, statues, idols everywhere. Again, the, the intellectual elites of the day were up on that Mars Hill, ruling over criminal, civil, and religious matters. And even though they were so smart, they were completely in the dark spiritually. They got it all wrong when it came to God. Their higher education did not bring them one iota closer to God. So you can go to college and get a bachelor's degree. You can go on and get your master's degree. You can even go on and get your doctorate degree and you will still be, you can still be totally lost. Education is great. But if you want to know God, you must be born again. Look at what Spurgeon said. Let's put the Spurgeon quote up there. It is certain that a blind man is no judge of colors, a deaf man is no judge of sound, and a man who has never been quickened into spiritual life, that's the, the new birth, that's the born again experience there, a man who has never been quickened into spiritual life can have no judgment as to spiritual things. When the highly educated Pharisee named Nicodemus came to Jesus by night to talk to Jesus, Jesus did not say, Nicodemus, you need more education. It's not what he said. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus in John 3, 3? He said, you must be born again. The religious guy, the intellect, the highly educated guy, the one that all Israel said, that's my teacher, wasn't even saved. Jesus had to say to him, you must be born again. In other words, you've got to be born twice. Our first birth is our physical birth, and our second birth is our spiritual birth. In November of 1966 in Waco, Texas, I had my first birth. I was born physically. Hillcrest Baptist Hospital. But then in May of 1984, I had my second birth. That's my spiritual birth there in Tampa, Florida. And my second birth, my spiritual birth, happened when I believed the foolishness of the message preached that Christ was crucified for me. Not just that he was crucified for the entire world, but that he went to a cross, even if I was the only person living on the face of the planet, he would have went to that cross and he would have died God in my place so that I could be saved. When I believed that and that alone, Christ alone, I was born again. D.L. Moody, how many of you guys have heard of D.L. Moody before? Incredible 19th century evangelist. God used him to reach hundreds of thousands for Christ throughout America and England. Moody was not highly educated. He was just a humble shoe salesman. He was anointed by God to preach the gospel. And when he was over one, one time in London, he decided that he was going to have a meeting for the intellectual elites in London. In other words, the atheists, the agnostics, the free thinkers of London were all invited by the then, the then famous D.L. Moody to come and hear Moody preach. And they came by the hundreds. Atheists, agnostics, free thinkers all came to hear this uneducated shoe salesman. And no doubt those intellectuals in the, in the congregation that day thought that both Moody and his message were foolishness until the Holy Spirit came and started to work in the meeting. Moody did not go for their minds, he went for their hearts. 
And he began to tell them stories, personal stories of encounters that he had with people on their deathbeds, believers on their deathbeds, and agnostics on their deathbeds. By the way, did you know there's a big difference in the experience of death between believers and agnostics and atheists? I've witnessed it myself. And by the way, a friend of mine told me a beautiful story. His mom loves Christ with all her heart. When she was dying of cancer under hospice care, they called them and said, you better get down here soon. And while the nurse looked into her door, the nurse watched my friend's mother literally sit up in bed, put her hands up, lay down, and she was dead. That's the experience of a believer. Jesus comes for us. But I also remember a time when I went to a hospital to visit someone on his deathbed. They had him strapped down. He was crying out, Michael, I'm so hot, I'm so hot. I'd already witnessed to the guy. So what'd you do? I got in his ear. He was half in and out. I just started preaching Christ crucified right into his head, right into his ear. Because I know that our God is merciful and he will save someone right up to the end if they'll just call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a difference. There's a difference. And so after Moody told those moving stories, about 500 of the intellectual elites of London stood up to receive Jesus Christ as their savior. 500. You see, here's what happened. When those intellectual elites were faced with eternity, when they were faced <clears throat> with the reality of their sin, when they finally got it that they were sinners and they came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the wages of sin is death, and without Christ, they're, they're goners, they saw their need for a savior and they cried out for Jesus Christ and they were born again. Look at verse 22. He says, for the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach, what's the two words there? That's our central message, ladies and gentlemen. May we never depart from our central message. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul said that the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews, here's why, most of you already know this, the Jews were expecting that when their promised Messiah, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, over and over, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that one day the Messiah is gonna come to save Israel. Okay, so the Jews of Jesus' day really thought that when the Messiah came, he would be a conquering Messiah. That he would crush Rome, he would set up his kingdom, and he would rule from Jerusalem over the world. But then this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, shows up in Jerusalem from the hills of Galilee. And his message is this. He's saying, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Completely opposite of what they were thinking. And then when their Sanhedrin, their leaders, condemned this Jesus of Nazareth, and then when Rome 
executed him. It was a stumbling block for them. They couldn't figure it out. They didn't know what was going on. And they didn't understand what we understand today. And that is that the Messiah had to come twice. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you gotta get this. This will really encourage and help your faith. But the Jews did not understand that at his first coming, the Messiah would fulfill prophecies like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, 26, Psalm 16, 10. I'm just scratching the surface. But all those prophecies right there on your screen have to do with the Messiah suffering and dying and then rising again. Psalm 16, 10 literally is an Old Testament prophecy, thousand years BC of, of the Christ, the Messiah, rising again. And so I'm just gonna get, uh, give you a little snippet to whet, you, whet your appetite, but you don't have to turn there. But in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Christ, this is what the Bible says about the coming Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment. And who will declare his generation? Listen to this. He was cut off from the land of the living. Right there, Isaiah 53, 8 is prophesying that the Messiah will die when he comes. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And so we see very clearly from Isaiah 53 and those other passages and many others that when Messiah comes, hundreds of years before he came, this is what those things say, those prophecies say, when he comes, he will suffer, he will die, he will rise again. The Jews were not looking at those prophecies. They were looking at prophecies that we understand now have to do with his second coming. They were looking at prophecies like Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, Psalm 50, 3 through 6. And by the way, there are hundreds of them. That's just a little idea. And all those prophecies have to do with Messiah coming as a conqueror and, 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 and judging the world and setting up his kingdom. And so that's what they were looking for. And so again, just to wet your whistle, Daniel chapter 7 Here's what it says in the Bible about the coming Messiah. This is 600 years BC. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom and all peoples, nations and languages will serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And so you remember Jesus standing before Caiaphas and he quotes that, Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, concerning himself, Caiaphas, blasphemy, rips his robe. Because Jesus absolutely knew he, who he was and proclaimed that he was the Messiah. 
So to the Jews, this whole, this whole thing is a, a stumbling block because they did not look at all the scriptures in their Bibles. I love the, the passage where Jesus, the resurrected Christ, he's there and he appears, you remember this, incognito to two of his disciples who are walking to the road to Emmaus. And while he's there, they don't know that he's Jesus, the risen Messiah. He somehow covers his identity. But while he's there, he noticed that these two guys are bummed out. The reason they're bummed out is because they really thought that Jesus of Nazareth was their Messiah. But then when their rulers condemned him and the Romans crucified him, those two Jewish men, the whole thing became a stumbling block. And then look at what Jesus says to them. Oh, what's the word? Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe in, what's the word? All, all that the prophets have spoken, not just the prophecies that he's coming back to rule and reign, but also the prophecies that he has to come and suffer and die, right? He says, ought not the Messiah to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning, here's the best Bible study that's ever been given in the history of mankind. Can you imagine being part of this Bible study? Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, what's the word there? There's expository teaching right there. Jesus did it. He expounded to them in all the what? Scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus took him through passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Daniel chapter 9, Psalm 16. The, the passages about his suffering and his death and his resurrection, they were all bummed out. They thought Jesus was their Messiah, but he died. And they're saying he could not have been, have been our Messiah. And he says, you're foolish because you don't believe all that the scriptures say. And so, yes. The message of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jewish people unless they believe all that the Bible says about the coming Messiah. And I just love this story, right? Is while, um, what the Lord does is he all of a sudden he appears to them as the resurrected Christ. Their eyes are opened. And you guys remember what happened? He disappeared. And they looked at one another. And here's what they said. Listen to this. If you're with me here, say amen. Don't miss this, okay? They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? What did Jesus do? He expounded in the scriptures. What did that do? It bolstered their faith and their heart burned within them. I'm going to come back to that here in just a moment, but now let's, let's look at verse 22 again. He says, for the Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Ladies and gentlemen, what is our central message as the church? Everybody, please say what you see on the screen. That's not our only message, but that is our central message right there. But here's what's sad. In the church today, that message is becoming less and less 
popular. I heard the story recently of a church, a solid, one solid church. And um, they had a, a um, inscription on an archway that led to the uh, courtyard of their church. And the inscription on the ar- archway said those words, we preach Christ crucified. So everybody who came to the church knew exactly what their central message was at that church. But in the years to come, here's what's sad. The pastor got away from the central message. And he began only to talk about Christ the humanitarian, Christ who came to do good deeds to people and how we ought to do good deeds to people also. Ironically, at the same time that the church was spiritually declining, there was ivy that was growing and covering part of the message so that it only now said, we preach Christ. Well, months and years continued to pass and the pastor even got away from that message. He stopped talking about Jesus completely. And all he could talk about was social and political issues. Well, ironically, at the same time the spiritual decline of that church was happening, the ivy continued to cover the message so that now it just said on the archway, we preach. Ironically, as the decline of the church continues, the pastor's messages now are all about the individual, the ivy keeps growing while that is happening. And now all of a sudden, all you can see on the church archway is the word we. And that is exactly what is happening in our churches today. We have gotten away from the central message of Christ and him crucified. And now it's all about the individual. No longer are we passionate in the church about the apostles doctrine or the apostles teaching no longer are we passionate about Matthew and Paul and 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 um, um, Jude and James and John and what they have to say in the New Testament as they were in the first century these people were passionate about the word of God we've gotten away from all of that and now like the Greeks of old the ancient Greeks man is now the center of our message no longer the scriptures It is so sad what is happening in our church because now our sermons are all about how to be a better you fill in the blank. How to uh, be a better you fill in the blank. How to win at life. And more and more pastors are turning away from the scriptures and they're going to self-help messages thinking that that is the way we're going to see people change in the church. Well, guess what? The last time I checked, John 17, 17 has not changed, where Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This is the only thing that changes us. This is the only, what is sanctification? It means changing and becoming more like Christ. That does not happen by me putting 10 steps to being a more successful you. And you're going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try to obey those things. Guess how long that'll last? Maybe tomorrow. But if I am going to teach you the word of God, then what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and he begins. And by the way, it's not always fun. Just like taking medicine is not always fun. It doesn't always taste good. 
But when we receive the word of God, the Holy Spirit comes and he begins slowly but surely to change us. But pastors today think that self-help messages are the way to change the church. Well, the last time I checked in John chapter 21, Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. And that's what we're going to do here. That's what we're going to do here until the day that I die. We're going to continue to go through the word of God. We're going to continue to teach the word of God. And by the way, not everybody's going to stomach it. Not everybody's going to like the medicine. It's not going to always be fun. It's not always going to be what you guys are, are doing right now. It's not always going to be exciting. But here's what I know. The Lord works the teaching of his word. You know why I know that? Because Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning them himself. He took them through the word of God and their hearts burned within them and their faith was encouraged. Look at verse 26. I need some water after that. <laughs> verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble are called. By the way, not many noble. It doesn't say any noble. So if you're wealthy and have a high status in society, there's still hope for you. Verse 27, but God has chosen the, what's the word? Foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the what? Weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And, and the what? The base things. That's low born. <laughs> That's what that means. Some of you guys are low born. You're praising God right now because God chose you. The base things of the world and the things which are, what's the word? Despised. God has chosen things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why would God do that? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Your next point, God chooses the lowly to accomplish his work so that he alone gets the glory. That's a principle of his word. Think about it this way. If a, if a surgeon in a state-of-the-art hospital with the best staff in America, um, with the, the best surgical tools, performs successfully a surgery and saves someone li someone's life, we think nothing of it. Well, yeah, he had the best staff, state-of-the-art hospital, right? Best equipment, of course, he did a good job. Put that same surgeon in the middle of a third-world country in the middle of a field with only a Swiss army knife. And then that surgeon successfully saved someone's life surgically with that Swiss army knife. Here's what we say. Wow, what a great surgeon, right? Exactly what Christ has done. When you look at the spread of Christianity in the first century, it defies logic. Well, if Jesus would have used people with power and influence, wealth and status, if he would have used the best and the brightest to spread his message, everybody would look back and say, well, of course Christianity spread. Look at the people Jesus used. But Jesus didn't use people like that. 
He used lowly fishermen and tax collectors, hillbillies from the hills of Galilee, Galilean peasants. And then what did he do? He filled those men and women with the Holy Spirit and they went out and turned their world upside down. Guess who gets the glory for that? God gets the glory for that. Just like the surgeon who successfully performs a surgery in a third world country in the middle of a field with a Swiss army knife. So Jesus Christ gets the glory for everything that he's done the last 2,000 years because he's used lowly people. Now, I thought of an exception. I thought about the Apostle Paul. He really is among the best and the brightest. But I, I got to thinking, even the Apostle Paul, you know, this is the guy who, like a wild animal, was persecuting Christians, imprisoning them, killing them. Okay, so the only power that can change someone who changed someone who killed Christians and make that person now someone who spreads Christianity, the only power that can do that is the power of Christ. So even in Paul's life, guess who gets the Guess who gets the glory? Jesus Christ. You may be here today and you say, God could never use me. I don't have the power and the influence. I don't have the wealth and status. I'm certainly not among the best and the brightest. Well, think again. I think that you're just the person the Lord wants to use. Why? Because when he uses a lowly man, a lowly woman, to accomplish his work, then he gets the glory. And by the way, it's not about us anyway. Look at our last two verses as Zach comes up to close this out. Verses 30 and 31. But of him, not, not us, right? But of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God. And look, look at this. So it's all about Christ, right? That's, that's, the, that, that's the point Paul's making. It's all about Jesus Christ. He's become for us wisdom from God and righteousness. Okay, is that our righteousness there? No, that's last week, imputed righteousness. When we turn to Christ in faith, he gives us his righteousness. He says, you're justified. So your okayness before God has nothing to do with you, what you did last week. Your okayness with God has to do with what Christ did on the cross for you. So Christ has become our righteousness, right? And not only that, our sanctification. So he's our, he's our righteousness, our justification. I have been saved. And now it says Christ is also your sanctification, okay? I have been saved from the power of I'm sorry, I have been saved from the penalty of sin, but in sanctification, now it's a process. I'm being saved from the power of sin in my life. Well, well, guess who gets the glory for that? Christ. See, you thought you were saved by grace, but then you had to hustle and work really hard to finish the work and get to heaven. And the Lord says, no, I did all the work. Paid in full means paid in full. It's all done. And God loves you just as much when you have your feet up and you're watching TV as he loves you when you're sitting at church worshiping his name. He loves you. You're right with him through Jesus Christ if you put your faith in him. He's your righteousness. He is your sanctification. Listen to this. He is your, end of verse 30, redemption. 
So it's justification, it's sanctification. Now he's talking about glorification when we receive our new bodies. That, all the glory for that, goes to Jesus Christ. And I want everybody to read verse 31 on the count of three, like you mean it. One, two, three. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let's just glory in the Lord. I want to take you back by way of closing this service to that D.L. Moody message in London and the stories that Moody shared, the deathbed stories of agnostics and atheists, but also of believers. And I want you to think for just a minute. And if, if you, you guys who, who know and love and are walking with the Lord, right, right now, if you could just start praying because no work is done in the church outside of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit answers prayers. And so D.L. Moody shared those stories. There is a big difference between people who don't know Christ and their death experience, and people who know Christ and their death experience. My question is, you gotta answer this honestly, just between you and the Lord. Do you know Christ? Well, I go to church. No, I didn't ask that. Well, I'm a good, I didn't ask that. I didn't ask if you're a good person. I'm asking, do you know Christ? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.